Well, 10 years ago today, I stood on the loading dock of the Carmike Theater in the Frontier Mall uh, here in Cheyenne with tears running down my face. We had just held our very first official service as Element Church. 200 people came to church that day. Five uh, people uh, put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. It was unbelievable. A week later, we did such a good a job on launch Sunday. A week later, we grew from 200 all the way down to 127. It was unbelievable. And really, in reality, since then, God has continued to blow us away with his faithfulness, his provision, and his grace. Amen? And I just want to pause for a moment and celebrate God for all he's done here at Element Church. Can we do that today? Hey, if you're, uh, if you're new here, my name is Jeff Mance. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Element Church. So glad that you are with us today. I don't always start with a nostalgic look back at where we've come from, but you happen to come on a day where there's going to be some of that as well. If you're joining us on video, uh, whether you're right here in our building or on the other side of the planet somewhere, uh, joining us online, man, we love it that you are with us as well. You're a part of our home, uh, whether you're here in person or not. On this 10-year anniversary, I did want to stop and thank some people, uh, some who are not here at Element Church any longer, uh, but these people, we would not have a church today without their sacrifice, uh, service, and dedication. So all the way back in 2007, 10 years ago, Grant and Terry Clark, Keenan and Katrina Fitzgerald, Adam and Amber Cruz, and Ben and Jill Roberts, those families joined my wife and I, uh, uprooting their lives, their families, moving to a town they knew nothing about to fulfill this dream that God had uh, called Element Church. Some of them joined us on staff, others just on our uh, core group. The Roberts family is still actively serving here at Element Church. I had the great privilege of baptizing their son uh, in the previous service. They've been here all 10 years. And while not everyone's ending on our team was what we had planned for or hoped for. God used, and I mean this, God used for the season they were with us, each and every one of them in incredible ways. And what you see today is due in large part to their commitment to see God's dream become a reality. And so I know some of you don't know who they are. Others of you know them really well, but whether you know them or not, I want to show them some honor today. So we say thank you to those guys as well. It's awesome. Now, this is a halfway point in a sermon series we are in called Walk This Way. And in the series, we're taking some stories from Scripture, some passages of the Bible that my wife and I, we got to personally see or experience while we were on a recent trip to the Holy Land uh, over the summer. And we're applying those stories, those Bibles, the truths in them to our everyday lives. For us to physically see what Jesus saw and walked where Jesus walked, it was really a, a, a faith-changing experience for us, opening the Bible up to us in a whole new way. And if you're interested in going on a trip to to Israel, you are in luck because Pastor Andy, one of our associate pastors, is leading a trip next June 8th through 17th. Uh, you can get all the information uh, at, with these uh, brochures out at the Next Steps wall. Uh, all the information is there for you. If you can't find the information you need on this, please ask one of us. Find a staff member or Pastor Andy himself, and we'll answer your questions. The first deposit is due on uh, December 15th. So if you'd like to go, uh, please grab one of those out at the Next Steps wall. Each week, I've been sharing 
sharing some different places we went to, some different things that we saw that I thought were cool or inspiring to me, maybe even a little bit funny before we get into the main scripture for the day. For instance, my wife and I, we are regulars at Starbucks. For me, it's my love for coffee. My wife actually hates coffee, but she loves the passion tea at Starbucks. And so we were really sad to learn before our trip that there is not one Starbucks in all of Israel. And to think they still call it the Holy Land. I mean, you'd think they'd have at least one in the Holy Land. But no. So we were walking through the town of Bethlehem one day, heading to the Church of the Nativity, where they believe the birth of Jesus took place. And I saw up the road what I thought was a Starbucks. So I got all excited. I'm like, babe, there's a Starbucks. Woo, we're going to get something. And then I got closer and realized it was not Starbucks at all. Here's a picture with me in front of Stars and Bucks Cafe. And trust me, when we got to the entrance, you would not go in there. It was not safe to go in that Stars and Bucks Cafe. But anyway, I wanted to share that picture. If I were to say Jericho, uh, most of us in the room would, would probably remember, be familiar with the story of Joshua and the Israelites marching around the city of Jericho, the walls tumbling down, and God giving them the first city in the promised land. But we had a chance to go to Jericho on our trip. It's a picture of uh, Jericho. Uh, the actual, so the walls that you see, not the thing right in front here, but that next wall with all the rocks on top of each other, that is not rebuilt wall. When they excavated uh, Jericho, that they believe is the original base of the walls of Jericho that fell down. Unbelievable. As we stood there at Jericho, and I know I've known that story my whole life as a pastor's kid growing up in the church, it was awesome to see that that wall there and God's faithfulness to uh, the people of Israel. I'll, I'll keep it. I made a friend, by the way, uh, at Jericho, uh, outside the city of Jericho. Here's my friend, uh, Charlie the, the camel. I don't know. It, it costs a dollar to ride him, but I didn't want to pay a dollar. I thought he might throw me off. I didn't want to be flown home uh, except with my whole body intact, so I did not get on the camel. Uh, I'll stick with the wall theme for the day. On our day, we were touring the old city of Jerusalem. We, we came and saw this. Uh, this here is actual, so that wall running up there on the ground. That, during another excavation in Jerusalem, that they believe is original wall that Nehemiah and the Israelites would have built when they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, miraculously building the entire wall in 52 days. So again, super cool to stop there, see the walls of Jerusalem uh, as they had been rebuilt back in the time of Nehemiah. I'll share one more today, and then we'll kind of wrap, wrap it all up here in a neat little bow, head into the sermon. As we were walking uh, up a hill outside of Nazareth, we came upon this plant here. It's about six or seven feet tall, pretty big plant, just shooting up by the sidewalk, walking up this hill. And our tour guide asked us, does anyone know what this plant is? Well, none of us did, so he told us it's a mustard plant. Then he quoted to us Matthew 13, 31 and 32, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it grows to be the largest of all garden plants. So there you have the mustard plant, largest of all, six, seven, eight feet high probably. Well, when we think of mustard seeds in America, we think of yellow mustard seeds, right? But that's not what this is. It's not a yellow mustard seed plant. In fact, when the Bible, when Jesus talks about mustard seeds, he's referring to this plant here. And so our uh, tour guide broke off one of the buds on the end of the stalk, shook in his hand those little specks in his hand, that's mustard seed. There's little tiny specks in his hand. And then he quoted us Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus again says, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, right there, 
You can say to this mountain, move over there and it will be done, for nothing shall be impossible for you. So, you ready for a little spiritual devotional here? If you're not, I don't care, I'm going to tell you anyway. So, I want you to think of those two walls and think of the mustard seed. We're going to put this all together. First of all, the walls of Jericho. That no wall in your life is so big, God can't bring it down. Now the walls of Nehemiah, building them up. That nothing is so broken in your life that God can't build it up. That if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can tear down walls in your life you thought were unbreakable and build up walls in your life you thought were gone forever. Isn't that encouraging? That's a sermon before the sermon, if you want to call it that. That, that faith does not mean I can do anything I want. Faith means I can do anything God wants. That with faith as small as a mustard seed, I can do anything God calls me to do. So as I said, that mustard plant was on a hill outside the town of Nazareth. If you don't know, Nazareth is the hometown of Jesus. And after we stopped by that plant, we made our way up to the top of the hill, and we overlooked a massive portion of Israel. Here's a panoramic look of, of what we saw at the top of this hill. Unbelievable. So just so you're aware, on a clear day from this place, you could see Mount Carmel, where Elijah won a prayer battle against the prophets of Baal. We actually went to Mount Carmel on one of our days. Super cool. You can see the Valley of Armageddon from this place. So Armageddon, if you don't know, is very significant because of its historical battles that happened there, but also significant in prophecy for the coming battle of Jesus where he will eventually take his throne for forever over the new heaven and a new earth. From this place, we could see where Gideon gathered his uh, soldiers to take on the Amalekites. We could see where Deborah defeated. Sisera in Judges. You could see where Elisha healed the name, uh, uh, the name, Namathite, name, whatever, Shunammite woman. Uh, couldn't think of her name. Uh, healed a Shunammite woman's son uh, in, I believe it was in 2 Kings. You could read there. I mean, from this spot that you're seeing there, there was like dozens upon dozens. Our tour guide was telling us so many things we could see. I couldn't write it down fast enough. I can't remember half of what we could see from this point here in Israel. Truly amazing sight. But none of those things we saw from that site were as significant as the, the next part I'm going to tell you. That right here on the precipice of this hill, there's a picture of it. This is where they believe members of Jesus' hometown tried to throw him off the ledge. They literally, as an adult man, when he started his ministry, they tried to kill Jesus long before he was ever killed on a cross. Here's a picture looking over the edge, and I promise you, it does not do justice to how steep or how high the ledge of this cliff was. So with those final pictures in mind, the precipice of this hill, I want to read to us a story and then look at some challenging truths on this 10-year anniversary of our church. So the main scripture today is Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. Luke 4, 14 through 30. If you got your Bible, it's the third book in the New Testament portion. So Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, okay? If you didn't bring a Bible, no worries. Everything I quote is going to be on the screens from Scripture, okay? And if you don't own a Bible, we will, we've been giving away for 10 years. We're going to keep giving them away. If you want a Bible, ask for one at guest services. The Next Steps uh, wall will get you a Bible free of charge. Luke, if you don't know, he was not an eyewitness himself to the life of Jesus, 
but he did gather all of his information for this letter from eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. He was actually a physician by trade, and so facts and details were incredibly important to him. In fact, you might be here today, and you are a fact-based, detail-oriented person. Maybe you even don't believe in God. You consider yourself a skeptic, perhaps. I love it that you're here, and I think you would actually like Luke. I I believe Luke wrote this letter for people like you, people who might need facts and and details of the information. In fact, look at what Luke says at the start of his letter, Luke 1, 3, and 4. He says this, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also had decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. That we don't know who Theophilus was, and I don't have time to give you all the, the perhaps that he could have been, but, but maybe he was a skeptic himself. We don't know. He was definitely someone who heard about Jesus. He was taught about Jesus. And then Luke, the physician, the scientist, made an accurate account for Theophilus, ultimately for us, so we can be certain of the things we've heard about Jesus. Amen. So Luke 4, chapter 4, starting in verse 14, I'm going to read all of the verses. So a lengthy passage today, so try to, try to kind of focus in. I'll stop a few times and make some comments that are important, and then we'll get on with the message. So here it is, Luke 4, starting in verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. I just want you to know that this was just after his baptism, And then following the 40 days of fasting he had in the desert where Satan himself tempted Jesus. So he was baptized. He went out into the desert for 40 days. And the devil tempted him. He came back. That's where we're at. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Just so you know, that was not weird. Uh, Different men would take turns on the Sabbath reading from the Old Testament, from the scriptures, to the people in the synagogue. It was Jesus' turn to read, so he did that. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. And what we're about to read from Jesus, Jesus was reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. So it's this Old Testament prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. So picture this. We know now after the fact, here's the Messiah reading a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Okay? That's what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. This is awesome. I think they knew something was up, something was was different, something was special about this moment and this man. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Drop the mic. That's like drop the mic moment if there ever has been one. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, I'm the Messiah. 
that guy you've been waiting for, that one that all the prophets spoke of, ta-da, I'm here. It's me, right? Then he began to speak to them. Sorry, verse 22. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. Then they said this. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, so powerful, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon, most likely a non-Jew, a Gentile. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian, also a Gentile. This is massive. So now Jesus is saying this, not only am I the Messiah, but I didn't just come for the Jews. I did not just come for the clean. I came for the unclean and also the Gentile too. That my mission, he was saying to these people in Nazareth, my mission is so much greater than you and so much larger than Israel. The Spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim that captives be released, the blind will see, the oppressed set free, and the year of the Lord's favor has come. This is where the, the response. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. To them, this was blasphemy. So, jumping up, they mobbed him, forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. That's the hill we saw earlier. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. I would have loved to see that. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Maybe he invoked his invisibility power. Maybe he called upon his inner MC hammer ability. Can't touch this. Do, 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 do. I don't know what he did, right? But he did something. However it happened, it happened. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses who saw this and then wrote it down for Theophilus and us, enraged by what he said. They brought him to the edge of the cliff, intending to throw him off, but somehow he passed right through and went on his way. Not today, is what he said. Not today. Now there's so much here we could talk about, so much. But I want to focus on the words of Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah. Now I've read this passage in Luke dozens upon dozens of times in my life. But I never once made the connection our tour guide made for us while we were standing on this hill. So he reads us this story, specifically the prophecy from Isaiah, and he says, Jesus didn't read the whole prophecy. Well, the pastor, theologian in me, is like, what do you mean he didn't read the whole prophecy? And then he said some words that I think will forever stick in my heart. I believe I'm changed by what our tour guide said. He said, Jesus stopped at the comma. Stopped at the comma. Some of you are like, what does that mean? I'm about to tell you. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is where Jesus was reading from, the prophecy he read from. Let's go to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Let's read it. It's going to sound just like what he said. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. 
For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, comma. And that's where he stopped reading. He did not finish the prophecy. There was more after the comma, but he did not finish the the thought. That wasn't going to be what he focused on. He was going to focus on what he was sent to do. And what he was sent to do is proclaim good news to the poor, comfort the brokenhearted, announce that captives will be released, and the year of the Lord's favor has come for those who mourn. And here's the rest of the prophecy, verse 2b in Isaiah 61. And with it, the day of God's anger, other versions say vengeance, against their enemies, literally against those who don't believe. Hello. So after the comma was a prophecy of judgment and wrath and condemnation, but Jesus didn't come for that. Oh, there will be judgment, church. God does send his wrath at the end of time. But that was not the business of Jesus and quite frankly should not be the business of his church. That Jesus himself said in John 3, 17, right after the famous John 3.16 that you'll see on football games today with some guy with a big old banner, Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Which, by the way, does not mean there is no condemnation. For Jesus goes on to say in John 3.18, the next verse, that anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God that was Jesus. So Jesus was not saying there is no condemnation. He was just saying, that's not my focus as the Messiah. That here in John 3, specifically in Luke 4, our main scripture, for some reason, Jesus intentionally stopped at the comma. And church, I have been so challenged by this. In my own faith, ever since we were in Israel, to be honest, even more so, upon my return, getting ready for this message. And here's the thing. It's going to blow some of you away. I don't have a big idea today. I don't have a big question. I don't even have points in this sermon. You're like, what? How is God going to move? I don't know. <laughs> and you might get to the end of the day and think that really didn't have a point, right? So here's, I just want to share my heart with you today. Is that okay? I'll share my heart with you today. I about preached my voice out in first service, so I don't know what I got left. I'm going to give it my all. Here's what I've been challenged by. Here's what I want to challenge our church with on this 10-year anniversary. That as we forge ahead into the next 10 years of ministry and beyond, I want to be a church that stops at the comma. I want to be a church that stops at the comma. That what we just read in Luke 4, this was the announcement that he was the Messiah and what the Messiah would be about. And Jesus was saying, I'm not going to be about 
judgment and wrath. I am going to be about love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And please, church, understand, it wasn't that he would never go on to challenge people to a higher standard of spiritual living. It didn't mean that he would never preach on hell, judgment, or wrath. My goodness, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He did all of that, and he did it often. Here, though, he just intentionally stopped at the comma, I believe not to say there will never be judgment and wrath, but to show that is not the reason I came. The reason I came is to save as many people as I can from the impending judgment and wrath that's coming. That whether you are Jew, yeah, you can clap. That's awesome. I'm going to keep on going. That whether you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, red, yellow, black or white, clean or unclean, that I have come for you. And church, we need to do the same. That I want to be a people that stops at the comma. I personally, I want to be a person that stops at the comma. Because reality is, We are so quick to judge, so quick. We judge by how someone looks. We judge by what they believe. We judge by how they act. And I'm just saying today, God, I'm saying this to you. Every person I encounter, I want to see them first through the lens of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. That no matter who you are, And no matter what you've done or where you've come from or currently believe, we are here, church, to announce good news to the poor. Not the poor in stuff, the poor in spirit who have never had a personal encounter with God's amazing love and forgiveness. We are here to comfort the brokenhearted. My goodness, church, look around us. The the hurt, the pain, the tragedy, the loss in our world. And we as a body, as the church, we hold the greatest healing power known to man. And that power is not found in a place or in a practice or in a political ideology. That power is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are here so that captives can be released and prisoners set free. Do you know how many people are bound by addiction or, or, or chained to something in their past? Dying for a way out. Locked in a prison cell of bitterness or unforgiveness and they need to be set free. And Jesus tells us that he and his way is the truth. And if you know the truth, then the truth will set you free. We are here, church, to tell those who mourn the year of the Lord's favor has come for you. That yes, even in the midst of our hardest times, in those moments that we are most broken, God can make us whole again. That our problems don't have to define us. They definitely don't have to defeat us. Yes, there are things in this life that will hurt and they are painful and they will even cause us to mourn. But we serve a God who brings new mercies every morning and the year of the Lord's favor has come, church. I am so challenged to be people that stop at the comma. 
to be a person that stops at the comma, to be a church that stops at the comma, to be like Jesus and reach out to those who nobody else wants or those people who believe that nobody would want them and then do our best to gather them in and prepare them to stand before Almighty God themselves because we all will stand before him and give an account. Church, if we aren't going to be a place that stops at the comma, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this place. And you shouldn't either. And listen, I'm trying to unpack this massive thought in 35 minutes, so I know I'm not, there's dozens of implications to this, okay? And I'm not doing it justice. But listen, I want you to know, I'm still going to preach what the Bible says. I am still going to stand firmly on what I believe to be the truth of God's word, I will unashamedly every week proclaim the gospel of Jesus, the implications that means in this life and in the ever afterlife. But I don't ever want to lose focus on what Jesus came to do, therefore on what we have been sent to do, that our job is not to focus on condemnation, it's to be fueled by the comma so that we can save with Jesus as many people as we can from what happens after the comma. This is a messy way to do church. It's a messy way to do church. Because I'm telling you, church, if we do church this way, if we continue on this trajectory, then our halls and our seats will be filled with people who are poor and brokenhearted, who are captive and imprisoned, who are broken and mourning, who are unclean, unwanted, and unloved. But church, where else would we want them to be than right here? Where else? Like God, help us. God, help us. Be a church that stops at the comma. Because Jesus stopped at the comma for me. I heard a message this last week. My sermon was already done. I went to run. I went out to run, get some exercise, listen to Steve Deneff, pastor of College Wesleyan Church in Marion, Indiana. And he was talking about the power of the local church and how important it is that the church exists. The church is God's plan A for redeeming people back to him. He set up the church. Not the building, the people. We are the church. So he said this in a message, I thought it fit very well today. He said, if people have to change before they are immersed into the body, if they have to change before they are immersed into the church, then what we are saying is they don't need us and neither do we. Hello. That if we are going to be a place that requires people to change before they come in, then we are not the church. Because Jesus said, follow me first, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Don't figure out how to be a fisher of men. When you get it all figured out, you're nice and clean, then come follow me. No, I take you dirty. Think of the fishing analogy. I did not give this 9 a.m. service. I don't know why I'm giving it today, but think of the fishing analogy. Okay, I've used this illustration before. When you go fishing, and I hate fishing, I don't get it, but whatever. When you go fishing, and you're out there in a boat, you don't stick your head under the water with a megaphone and tell the fish, hey, fish, when you get cleaned up, just hop in. No, you throw out the line, sometimes for hours on end, 
and you catch a fish. And what is it? It's dirty. And what do you do? You clean it. So guess what Jesus was saying when he said, I'm making you fishers of men. He was saying, don't go out and find clean people. Go out and find unclean people and let me clean them up. So on July 10th of this year, Roberta Ursay and her family were enjoying a, a beautiful day on Panama City Beach in Florida. Everything was going great that day. They were enjoying the, the sunshine until Roberta heard the screams of her two sons about 100 yards offshore yelling for help. Roberta, not realizing they were caught in a rip current, swam out to them to help along with her mother, the boy's grandmother. Now all four of them caught in a rip current about 15 feet high of water, unable to swim to shore, inching closer and closer to death. So now all of them screaming in terror towards the beach, groups of people. At first, the people thought there's a shark in the water, but then they realized there's no shark. They're yelling for help, that they're all drowning. So nine swimmers total, several who tried to swim out to the family and help them, nine people now caught in the same rip current, in danger of death, dire situation, 911 was called, the police arrive. They could not get to the family to save them, so they called in a boat. Well, the boat was going to take too long. They were already starting to be exhausted going down in the water. That's when a group of people decided to take matters in their own hands. One of them had the idea to, come to, to get a rope out to them, but they couldn't find a rope. So another bystander said, we don't have any rope, <laughs> but we can make a human chain. And that's what they did. Here's some the best pictures I could find from the actual event happening. Immediately, people started to volunteer themselves to this rescue effort. They began organizing themselves from shortest to tallest, putting the tallest men in the deepest part of the water so that their head was above water, but their feet were firmly planted on the ground. So linking arms, they got as, as far out as they could, and they were still about 15 feet short from reaching the drowning swimmers. All the while, the same tide that created the whip current was crashing now against this, this human chain, making it nearly impossible to stay together. And each, each member of the chain now had to tighten their grip and steady their legs, knowing that if they don't do their part, these nine swimmers would lose their lives. The 15-foot gap had to be made up quickly before all their energy was gone. So someone had another idea. Let's get a surfboard out on the chain and we'll get it out to the family and then we'll pull them in one at a time on the surfboard. And that's what they did. They ran a surfboard all the way down the chain. They got it out far enough for the family to get it and starting with the youngest children, one at a time. It's only for the one. <laughs> Put it on the surfboard and worked it back down the chain and back out. Down the chain, back out. Until all nine people were saved. All because a group of about 70 or 80 strangers decided, hey, we're going to work together, each of us doing our own part, risking our own comfort, our own preferences, our own safety to rescue somebody else that's headed for destruction. And when I read that story, church, I thought that should be a picture of our church. So many people caught up in the rip current of life headed for certain destruction. 
and they don't need the church just telling them they're going to die. They need the church to bring them life. They need us, church, to be a people that stops at the comma. Like Jesus did. Not neglecting that there is a judgment, but never making that their focus. Focusing on saving as many as they can from the impending judgment. And I know, I said it, there's dozens of implications in the room. Like right now, some of you are thinking, what's he talking about? Because you got questions. Your questions are, but what about? But what about violence, Pastor Jeff? But what about racism, Pastor Jeff? What about the divide we find ourselves in this country? What about the political turmoil we seem to constantly be in? Some of you are thinking this, well, what about homosexuality? And please hear me, I am not making, I, I'm not making a political statement at all in the next thing I'm gonna say, so please hear me. But the answer to racism in our country is not standing or kneeling or protesting anything. The answer, and I'm all for freedom of protest, it's the freedom of America. I'm not saying we shouldn't ever do that, but that's not the answer. The answer to our divide is not a different president. The, the answer to violence is not legislation. And the answer to whatever the Bible says is sin is not making more laws to squelch the sin. The answer to racism, the answer to our divide, the answer to violence, the answer to every sin is not anything that happens on the outside. It's what happens on the inside. That until a person's heart is changed, it does not matter who's in the office. We could have the most dedicated Christian of all eternity as president, but if people don't know Jesus, we still have a divide. And the body of Christ needs to be the first ones to cross the stinking divide and say, we are here for you. Even if we don't agree, we are here for you. I'm just sick of it. Jesus is our only hope. Our only hope. <laughs> and he chose, Jesus, Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus chose to stop at the comma. Will we? I had this awesome idea. I'm over time and I apologize. I had this awesome idea, I'm sweating like a hog up here. I was like, how cool would it be? And I'm not going to do this so all introverts in the room don't freak out. How awesome would it be if we just stood up together to end the service and just locked arms and said, we will be a human chain. We will lock arms together and we will wade out into the deepest part of the sea to rescue those who are lost. And we're not doing that, but you can think about it. I've been so challenged, church. It starts with me to be a person of the comma. And I just want to know who wants to go with me? <laughs> who wants to go with me?
I love you guys. And I can't wait to see what God does next. And I'm confident, church, if we'll lock arms and if we'll focus before the comma more than after, we're going to continue to see people come to know Jesus, become more like Jesus, and stand before Jesus with us on that last day. And they will hear along with us, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray for you. God, you're so good. Thank you, Jesus, that you stopped at the comma for me. I know who I am, and I do not deserve it. So I pray, God, that now we would stop at the comma with you for our world. God, we love you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.